Section 9 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Fifth Day, May the 19th. The court was again crowded long before the commencement of the proceeding this morning. The Earl of Denby and Lord Littleton were among the gentlemen who occupied seats upon the bench. The jury came into court shortly before ten o'clock, and were soon followed by Lord Campbell and Mr. Justice Cresswell, accompanied by the recorder, the sheriffs, and under-sheriffs, etc. Mr. Baron Alderson did not take his seat until about two o'clock. The prisoner was immediately placed at the bar. There was no alteration perceptible in his countenance or demeanour, and he took notes of several parts of Dr. Taylor's evidence. The Attorney-General, Mr. E. James Q.C., Mr. Wellsby, Mr. Bodkin, and Mr. Huddleston, appeared for the Crown. Mr. Sergeant Shee, Mr. Grove Q.C., Mr. Gray, and Mr. Keneally for the prisoner. Dr. Alfred Swain Taylor, examined by the Attorney-General. I am a Fellow of the College of Physicians, lecturer on medical jurisprudence at Guy's Hospital, and the author of a well-known treatise on poisons and on medical jurisprudence. I have made the poison called strychnia the subject of my attention. It is the produce of the nux vomica, which also contains bruchia, a poison of an analogous character. Bruchia is variously estimated at from one-sixth to one-twelfth the strength of strychnia, most varieties of impure strychnia that are sold contain more or less bruchia. Unless, therefore, you are certain as to the purity of the article, you may be misled as to its strength. I have performed a variety of experiments with strychnia on animal life. I have never witnessed its action on a human subject. I have tried its effects upon animal life, upon rabbits, in ten or twelve instances. The symptoms are, on the whole, very uniform. The quantity I have given has varied from half a grain to two grains. Half a grain is sufficient to destroy a rabbit. I have given it both in a solid and a liquid state. When given in a fluid state, it produces its effects in a very few minutes. When in a solid state, as a sort of pill or bolus, in about six to eleven minutes. The time varies according to the strength of the dose, and also to the strength of the animal. In what way does it operate, in your opinion? It is first absorbed into the blood, then circulated through the body, and especially acts on the spinal cord, from which proceed the nerves acting on the voluntary muscles. Supposing the poison to have been absorbed, what time would you give for the circulating process? The circulation of the blood through the whole system is considered to take place about once in four minutes. The circulation in animals is quicker. The absorption of the poison by rabbits is therefore quicker. The time would also depend on the stomach, whether it contained much food or not, whether the poison came into immediate contact with the inner surface of the stomach. In your opinion, does the poison act immediately on the nervous system, or must it first be absorbed? It must first be absorbed. The symptoms, you say, are uniform. Will you describe them? The animal, for about five or six minutes, does not appear to suffer, but moves about gently. When the poison begins to act, it suddenly falls on its side. There is a trembling, a quivering motion of the whole of the muscles of the body, arising from the poison producing violent and involuntary contraction. There is then a sudden paroxysm or fit. The forelegs and the hind legs are stretched out. The head and the tail are drawn back in the form of a bow. The jaws are spasmodically closed. The eyes are prominent. After a short time there is a slight remission of the symptoms, and the animal appears to lie quiet. But the slightest noise or touch reproduces another convulsive paroxysm 
Sometimes there is a scream or a sort of shriek, as if the animal suffered from pain. The heart beats violently during the fit, and after a succession of these fits, the animal dies quietly. Sometimes, however, the animal dies during a spasm, and I only know that death has occurred from holding my hand over the heart. The appearances after death differ. In some instances, the rigidity continues. In one case, the muscles were so strongly contracted for a week afterwards that it was possible to hold the body by its hind legs, stretched out horizontally. In an animal killed the other day, the body was flaccid at the time of death, but became rigid about five minutes afterwards. I have opened the bodies of animals thus destroyed. Could you detect any injury in the stomach? No. I have found in some cases congestion of the membranes of the spinal cord to a greater extent than would be accounted for by the gravitation of the blood. In other cases I have found no departure from the ordinary state of the spinal cord and the brain. I ascribe congestion to the succession of fits before death. In a majority of instances, three out of five, I found no change in the abnormal condition of the spine. In all cases, the heart has been congested, especially the right side. I saw a case of ordinary tetanus in the human subject years ago, but I have not had much experience of such cases. I saw one case last Thursday week at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. The patient recovered. You have heard the descriptions given by the witnesses of the symptoms and appearances which accompanied Cook's attacks? I have. Were those symptoms and appearances the same as those you have observed in the animals to which you administered strychnine? They were. Death has taken place in the animals more rapidly when the poison has been administered in a fluid than in a solid form. They have died at various periods after the administration of the poison. The experiments I have performed lately have been entirely in reference to solid strychnine. In the first case, the symptoms began in seven minutes, and the animal died, including those seven, in thirteen minutes. In the second case, the symptoms appeared in nine minutes, and the animal died in seventeen. In the third case, the symptoms appeared in ten minutes, and the animal died in eighteen. In the fourth case, the symptoms appeared in five minutes, and death took place in twenty-two. In the fifth case, the symptoms appeared in 12 minutes, and death occurred in 23. If the poison were taken by the human subject in pills, it would take a longer time to act, because the structure of the pill must be broken up in order to bring the poison in contact with the mucous membrane of the stomach. I have administered it to rabbits in pills. Would poison given in pills take a longer period to operate on a human subject than on a rabbit? I do not think we can draw any inference from a comparison of the rapidity of death in a human subject and in a rabbit. The circulation and absorption are different in the two cases. There is also a difference between one human subject and another. The strength of the dose, too, would make a difference as a large dose would produce a more rapid effect than a small one. I have experimented upon the intestines of animals in order to reproduce the strychnia. The process consists in putting the stomach and its contents in alcohol with a small quantity of acid, which dissolves the strychnia and produces sulphate of strychnia in the stomach. The liquid is then filtered, gently evaporated, and an alkali added, carbonate of potash, which mixed with a small quantity of sulfuric acid, precipitates the strychnia. Tests are applied to the strychnia, or supposed strychnia, when extracted. Strychnia has a peculiar, strongly bitter taste. It is not soluble in water, but it is in acids and in alcohol. The colouring tests are applied to the dry residue after evaporation. Change of colour is produced by a mixture of sulfuric acid and bichromate of potash. It produces a blue colour, changing to violet and purple, and passing to red. But colouring tests are very fallacious, with this exception. 
when we have strychnine separated in its crystallized state we can recognize the crystals by their form and their chemical properties and above all by the production of tetanic symptoms and death when administered through a wound in the skin of animals are there other vegetable substances from which if these colouring tests were applied similar colours would be obtained there are a variety of mixtures which produce similar colours one of them has also a bitter taste like strychnia vegetable poisons are more difficult of detection by chemical process than mineral poisons the tests are far more fallacious i have endeavoured to discover the presence of strychnine in animals i have poisoned in four cases assisted by dr rees i have applied the process which i first described i have then applied the tests of colouring and of taste were you able to satisfy yourself on the presence of strychnia in one case i discovered some by the colour test in a second case there was a bitter taste but no other indication of strychnia in the other two cases there were no indications at all of strychnia in the case where it was discovered by a colour test two grains had been administered and in the second case where there was a bitter taste one grain in one of the cases where we failed to detect it one grain and in the other half a grain had been given how do you account for the absence of any indication of strychnia in cases where you know it was administered it is absorbed into the blood and is no longer in the stomach it is in a great part changed in the blood how do you account for its presence when administered in large doses there is a retention of some in excess of what is required for the destruction of life supposing a minimum dose which will destroy life has been given could you find any no it is taken up by absorption and is no longer discoverable in the stomach the smallest quantity by which i have destroyed the life of an animal is half a grain there is no process with which i am acquainted by which it can be discovered in the tissues as far as i know a small quantity cannot be discovered suppose half a grain to be absorbed into the blood what proportion does it bear to the total quantity of blood circulated in the system assuming the system to contain the lowest quantity of blood twenty five pounds it would be one fiftieth of a grain to a pound of blood a physician once died from a dose of half a grain in twenty minutes i believe it undergoes some partial change in the blood which increases the difficulty of discovering it i never heard of its being separated from the tissues in a crystallized state the crystals are peculiar in form but there are other organic crystallized substances like them so that a chemist will not rely on the form only after the post-mortem examination of cook a portion of the stomach was sent to me it was delivered to me by mr boycott in a brown stone jar covered with a bladder tied and sealed the jar contained the stomach and the intestines i have experimented upon them with a view to ascertain if there was any poison present what poisons did you seek for in the first instance various prussic acid oxalic acid morphia strychnia veratria tobacco poison hemlock arsenic antimony mercury and other mineral poisons did you find any of them we only found small traces of antimony were the parts upon which you had to operate in your search for strychnia in a favourable condition the most unfavourable that could possibly be the stomach had been completely cut from end to end all the contents were gone and the fine mucous surface on which any poison if present would have been found was lying in contact with the outside of the intestines all thrown together the inside of the stomach was lying in the mass of intestinal feculent matter that was the fault or misfortune of the person who dissected i presume it was but it seemed to have been shaken about in every possible way in the journey to london the contents of the intestines were there but not the contents of the stomach in which and on the mucous membrane i should have expected to find poison by my own request other portions of the body were sent up to me 
namely the spleen the two kidneys and a small bottle of blood they were delivered to me by mr boycott we had no idea whence the blood had been taken we analyzed all we searched in the liver and one of the kidneys for mineral poison each part of the liver one kidney and the spleen all yielded antimony the quantity was less in proportion in the spleen than in the other parts it was reproduced or brought out by boiling the animal substance in a mixture of hydrochloric acid and water gall and copper water were also introduced and the antimony was found deposited on the copper we applied various tests to it those of professor brandt of dr rees and others i detected some antimony in the blood it is impossible to say with precision how recently it had been administered but i should say within some days the longest period at which antimony can be found in the blood after death is eight days the earliest period at which it has been found after death within my own knowledge is eighteen hours a boy died within eighteen hours after taking it and it was found in the liver antimony is usually given in the form of tartar emetic it acts as an irritant and produces vomiting if given in repeated doses a portion would find its way into the blood and the system beyond what is ejected if it continued to be given after it had produced certain symptoms it would destroy life it may however be given with impunity i heard the account given by the female servants of the frequent vomiting of mr cook both at rugeley and at shrewsbury and also the evidence of mr gibson and mr jones as to the predominant symptoms in this case vomitings produced by antimony would cause those symptoms if given in small quantities sufficient to cause vomiting it would not affect the colour of the liquid in which it was mixed whether brandy wine broth or water it is impossible to form an exact judgment as to the time when the antimony was administered but it must have been within two or three weeks at the outside before death there was no evidence that any had been given within some hours of death it might leave a sensation in the throat a choking sensation if a large quantity was taken at once i found no trace of mercury during the analysis if a few grains had been taken recently before death i should have expected to find some trace if a man had taken mercury for a syphilitic affection within two or three weeks i should have expected to find it it is very slow in passing out of the body as small a quantity as three or four grains might leave some trace i recollect a case in which three grains of calomel were given three or four hours before death and traces of mercury were found half a grain three or four days before death if favourably given and not vomited would i should expect leave a trace one grain would certainly do so i heard the evidence as to the death of mrs smith agnes french and the other lady mentioned and also as to the attack of clutterbuck from your own experience in reference to strychnine do you coincide in opinion with the other witnesses that the deaths in those cases were caused by strychnine yes did the symptoms in cook's case appear to be of a similar character to the symptoms in those cases they did as a professor of medical science do you know any cause in the range of human disease except strychnine to which the symptoms in cook's case can be referred i do not cross-examined by mr sergeant shee i mean by the word trace a very small quantity which can hardly be estimated by weight i do not apply it in the sense of an imponderable quantity in chemical language it is frequently used in that sense an infinitesimal quantity would be called a trace the quantity of antimony that we discovered in all parts of the body would make up about half a grain we did not ascertain that there was that quantity but i will undertake to say that we extracted as much as half a grain that quantity would not be sufficient to cause death only arsenic 
or antimony could have been deposited under the circumstances on the copper and no sublimate of arsenic was obtained the witness in reply to her further question detailed the elaborate test which he had applied to the deposit in order to ascertain that it consisted of antimony would a mistake in any one of the processes you have described or a defect in any of the materials you used defeat the object of the test it would but all the materials i used were pure such an accident could not have happened without my having some intimation of it in the course of the process i should think antimony would operate more quickly upon animals than upon men i am acquainted with the works of orfila he stood in the highest rank of analytical chemists did not orfila find antimony in a dog four months after injection yes but the animal had taken about forty-five grains mr sergeant shee called the attention of the witness to a passage in orfila's work in reference to that case to the effect that the antimony was found accumulating in the bones the liver contained a great deal and the tissues a very little witness yes when antimony has been long in the body it passes into the bones but i think you will find that these are not orfila's experiments orfila is quoting the experiments of another person but is it not the case with nearly all the experiments referred to in your own book no i cannot say that mr sergeant shee again referred to a case in orfila in which forty-five grains were given to a dog and three and a half months after death a quantity was found in the fat and some in the liver bones and tissues witness that shows that antimony gets into the bones and flesh but i never knew a case in which forty-five grains had been given and i have given no opinion upon such a case a pretty good dose is required to poison a person i suppose that depends on the mode in which it is given a dog has been poisoned with six grains the dog died in the case you mentioned when antimony is administered as it was in that case the liver becomes fatty and gristled cook's liver presented no appearance of the sort i should infer that the antimony we found in cook's body was given much more recently than in the experiments you have described we cannot say positively how long it takes to get out of the body but i have known three grains cleared out in twenty-four hours i was first applied to in this case on thursday the twenty seventh of november by mr stevens who was introduced to me by mr warrington professor of chemistry either then or subsequently he mentioned mr gardiner i had not known mr gardiner before i had never before been concerned in cases of this kind at rugeley mr sergeant shee read the letter written by dr taylor to mr gardiner Quote, chemical laboratory guides hospital december the fourth eighteen fifty five re j p cook esq deceased dear sir dr rees and i have completed the analysis to-day we have sketched a report which will be ready to-morrow or next day as i am going to durham assizes on the part of the crown in the case of regina and wooler the report will be in the hands of dr rees number twenty six albemarle street it will be most desirable that mr stevens should call on dr rees read the report with him and put such questions as may occur in reply to your letter received here this morning i beg to say that we wish a statement of all the medicines prescribed for deceased until his death to be drawn up and sent to dr rees we do not find strychnine prussic acid or any trace of opium from the contents having been drained away it is now impossible to say whether any strychnine had or had not been given just before death but it is quite possible for tartar emetic to destroy life if given in repeated doses and so far as we can at present form an opinion in the absence of any natural cause of death the deceased may have died from the effects of antimony in this or some other form we are dear sir yours faithfully alfred s taylor g owen rees
End quote. Was that your opinion at the time? It was. We could infer nothing else. Have you not said that the quantity of antimony you found was not sufficient to account for death? Certainly. If a man takes antimony, he first vomits, and then a part of the antimony goes out of the body. Some may escape from the bowels. A great deal passes at once into the blood by absorption and is carried out by the urine. Can you say upon your oath that from the traces in Cook's body you were justified in stating your opinion that death was caused by antimony? Yes, perfectly and distinctly. That which is found in a dead body is not the slightest criterion as to what the man took when he was alive. When you gave your opinion that Cook died from the effects of antimony, had you any reason to think that an undue quantity had been administered? I could not tell. People may die from large or small quantities. The quantity found in the body was no criterion as to how much he had taken. May not the injudicious use of a quack medicine containing antimony, the injudicious use of James's powders, account for the antimony you found in the body? Yes, the injudicious use of any antimonial medicine would account for it. Or even their judicious use? It might. With that knowledge, upon being consulted with regard to Cook, you gave it as your opinion that he died from the poison of antimony? You pervert my meaning entirely. I said that antimony, in the form of tartar emetic, might occasion vomiting and other symptoms of irritation, and that in large doses it would cause death, preceded by convulsions. The witness was proceeding to read his report upon the case, but was stopped by the court. I was told that the deceased was in good health seven or eight days before his death, and that he had been taken very sick and ill, and had died in convulsions. No further particulars being given to us, we were left to suppose that he had not died a natural death. There was no natural cause to account for death, and finding antimony existing throughout the body, we thought it might have been caused by antimony. An analysis cannot be made effectually without information. You think it necessary, before you can rely upon an analysis, to have received a long statement of the symptoms before death? A short statement will do. You allow your judgment to be influenced by the statement of a person who knows nothing of his own knowledge? I do not allow my judgment to be influenced in any way. I judge by the result. Do you mean to state that what Mr. Stevens told you did not assist you in arriving at the conclusion you state in writing? I stated it as a possible cause, not as a certainty. If we had found a very large quantity of tartar emetic in the stomach, we should have come to the conclusion that the man had died from it. As we found only a small quantity, we said he might have died from it. I attended the inquest on the body of Mr. Cook. I think I first attended on the 14th of December. Some of the evidence was read over to me. I think that Dr. Harland was the first witness I heard examined. I heard Mr. Bamford examined, and also Lavinia Barnes. I cannot say as to Newton. I heard Jones. I had experimented some years ago on five of the rabbits I have mentioned. That is about 23 years ago. That is the only knowledge of my own that I had of the effect of strychnia upon animal life. I have a great objection to the sacrifice of life. No toxicologist will sacrifice the lives of a hundred rabbits to establish facts which he knows to be already well established. I experimented upon the last rabbits since the inquest. Do you not think that is a very slight experiment? You must add to experiment the study of poisons and cases. Do not you think that a rabbit is a very unfair animal to select? No. Would not a dog be much better? Dogs are very dangerous to handle. A laugh. Do you mean to give that answer? Dogs and cats bear a greater analogy to man because they vomit, while rabbits do not, but rabbits are much more manageable. 
Mr. Sergeant Shee, I will take your answer that you are afraid of dogs. Witness. After the experiments I have tried with dogs and cats, I have no inclination to go on. Do you admit that as to the action of the respiratory organs, they would be better than rabbits? I do not. As to the effect of the poison, would they not? I think a rabbit is quite as good as any animal. The poison is retained and its operation is shown. At the inquest, I saw Mr. Gardner. I suggested questions to the coroner. Some of them he put to the witnesses, and others they answered upon my suggestion of them. Ten days before the inquest, Mr. Gardner informed me, in his letter, that strychnia, Batley's solution, and prussic acid had been purchased on the Tuesday. That is why I use the expressions to which you have referred. We did not allow that information to have any influence upon our report. At the request of Mr. Sergeant Shee, the deposition of this witness taken at the coroner's inquest was read by the clerk of arraigns. Cross-examination continued. Having given my evidence, I returned to town, and soon afterwards heard that the prisoner had been committed on a charge of willful murder. And that his life depended in a great degree upon you? No. I simply gave an opinion as to the poison, not as to the prisoner's case. I knew that I should probably be examined as a witness upon this trial. Do you think it your duty to abstain from all public discussion of the question which might influence the public mind? Yes. Did you write a letter to the Lancet? Yes, to contradict several misstatements of my evidence which had been made. This letter, which appeared in the Lancet of February the 2nd, 1856, was put in by Mr. Sergeant Shee and read by the clerk of arraigns. The principal part of the letter referred to the case of Mrs. Anne Palmer, the concluding paragraph for which Mr. Sergeant Shee stated that he desired it should be read was as follows. Quote, During the quarter of a century which I have now specially devoted to toxicological inquiries, I have never met with any case like these suspected cases of poisoning at Rugeley. The mode in which they will affect the person accused is of minor importance compared with the profitable influence on society. I have no hesitation in saying that the future security of life in this country will mainly depend on the judge, the jury, and the counsel who may have to dispose of the charges of murder which have arisen out of these investigations. End quote. Cross-examination continued. That is my opinion now. It had been stated that if strychnia caused death, it could always be found, which I deny. It had also been circulated in every newspaper that a person could not be killed by tartar emetic, which I deny, and which might have led to the destruction of hundreds of lives. I entertain no prejudice against the prisoner. What I meant was that if these statements which I have seen in medical and other periodicals were to have their way, there was not a life in the country which was safe. Do you adhere to your opinion that the mode in which they will affect the person accused, that is, lead him to the scaffold, is of minor importance compared with their probable influence on society? I have never suggested that they should lead him to the scaffold. I hope that, if innocent, he will be acquitted. What do you mean by the mode in which they will affect the person accused being of minor importance? The lives of 16 million of people are, in my opinion, of greater importance than that of one man. That is your opinion? Yes. As you appear to put that as an objection to my evidence, allow me to state that in two dead bodies I find antimony. In one case death occurred suddenly, and in the other the body was saturated with antimony, which I never found before in the examination of three hundred bodies. I say these were circumstances which demanded explanation. You adhere to the opinion that, as a medical man and a member of an honourable profession, you were right in publishing this letter before the trial of the person accused? 
I think I had a right to state that opinion in answer to the comments which had been made upon my evidence. Had any comments been made by the prisoner? No. Or by any of his family? Mr. Smith, the solicitor for the defence, circulated in every paper statements of Dr. Taylor's inaccuracy. I had no wish or motive to charge the prisoner with this crime. My duty concerns the lives of all. Do you know Mr. Augustus Mayhew, the editor of the Illustrated Times? I have seen him once or twice. Did you allow pictures of yourself and Dr. Rees to be taken for publication? Be so good as to call them caricatures. No, I did not. Mr. Sergeant Shee, there may be a difference of opinion as to that. I think it is very like. Did you receive Mr. Mayhew at your house? He came to me with a letter of introduction from Professor Faraday. I never received him in my laboratory. Did you know that he called in order that you might afford him information for an article in the Illustrated Times? I swear solemnly I did not. The publication of that article was the most disgraceful thing I ever knew. I had never seen him before, nor did I know that he was the editor of the Illustrated Times. On your oath? On my oath. It was the greatest deception that was ever practised on a scientific man. It was disgraceful. He called on me in company with another gentleman, with a letter from Professor Faraday. I received him as I should Professor Faraday, and entered into conversation with him about these cases. He represented, as I understood, that he was connected with an insurance company, and wished for information about a number of cases of poisoning which had occurred during many years. After we had conversed about an hour, he asked if there was any objection to the publication of these details. Still believing him to be connected with an insurance office, I replied that, so far as the correction of error was concerned, I should have no objection to anything appearing. On that evening he went away without telling me that he was the editor of the Illustrated Times or connected with any other paper. I did not know that until he called upon me on Thursday morning and showed me the article in print. I remonstrated verbally with him. He only showed me part of a slip. I told him I objected to its publication and struck out all that I saw regarding these cases. He afterwards put the article into the shape in which it appeared. I could not prevent his publishing the results of our conversation on points not connected with these cases. You did permit him to publish part of the slip? Nothing connected with the Rugeley cases. Did he show you the slip of our interview with Dr. A. Taylor? I do not remember seeing that. I will swear that, to the best of judgment and belief, he did not. He showed me a slip containing part of what appeared in that article. I struck out all which referred to the Rugeley cases. I thought I had been deceived. A person came with a letter of introduction from a scientific man and extracted information from me. Why did you not tell your servant to show him the door? Until we had had the conversation, I did not know anything about the deception. It was not until the Thursday morning that I knew he was connected with a paper. He told me it was an illustrated paper. Did you correct what he showed you? I struck out some portions. And allowed the rest to be published? I said I had nothing to do with it, but I objected to its publication. Peremptorily? No, I said, I do not like this mode of putting the matter. I cannot, however, interfere with what you put into your journal. Did you not protest as a gentleman, a man of honour, and a medical man, that it was wrong and objectionable to do it? I told him that I objected to the parts which referred to the Rugeley cases. It was most dishonourable. Did you not know that in the month of February an interview with Dr. Taylor on the subject of poison must be taken to apply to those cases? I did not think anything about it. I thought it was a great cheat to extract from me that information. Mr. Mayhew was with me about twenty minutes or half an hour on the Thursday morning. I remonstrated with him. I was not angry with him in the sense of quarrelling. Did you allow him to publish this? Quote, 
Dr. Taylor here requested us to state that, although the practice of secret poisoning appeared to be on the increase, it should be remembered that by analysis the chemist could always detect the presence of poison in the body. End quote. I did not request him to state anything of the kind. I do not remember whether that was on the slip. Had I seen it, I should have struck it out. I remember seeing on the slip, quote, and that when analysis fails, as in cases where small doses of strychnia had been administered, physiology and pathology would invariably suffice to establish the cause of death. End quote. I did not strike that out. I did not think of it circulating among the class of persons from whom jurors would be selected. I think the public ought to know that chemical analyses are not the only tests on which they can rely. I don't remember the passage, quote, murder by poison could be detected as readily as murder in any other form, while the difficulty of detecting and convicting the murderer was felt in other cases as well as in those where poison was employed, end quote. The article has been very much altered. It was a disgraceful thing. I have not seen Mr. Mayhew since. Seeing in The Times an advertisement stating that this information had been given by me, I wrote to him demanding its withdrawal, and that demand was complied with. That was on the Thursday or Friday. Did you say to a gentleman named Cook Evans that you would give them strychnia enough before they had done, or words to that effect? No, I do not know the person. Or to anyone? No, I never use any expression so vulgar and improper. You have been greatly misinstructed. Or, he will have strychnia enough before I have done with him? It is utterly false. The person who suggested that question to you, Mr. Johnson, has been guilty of other falsehoods. In the letter to Sir George Grey, and on other occasions, he has misrepresented my statements and evidence. What did you do with the medical report to which you referred? It was a private letter from Dr. Harland to Mr. Stevens. Mr. Justice Cresswell. It was a memorandum made by Dr. Harland at the time. Cross-examination continued. Cook's symptoms were quite in accordance with an ordinary case of poisoning by strychnia. Can you tell me of any case in which a patient, after being seized with tetanic symptoms, sat up in bed and talked? It was after he sat up that Cook was seized with those symptoms. Can you refer to a case in which such a person who had taken strychnia beat the bed with his or her arms? It is exactly what I should expect to arise from a sense of suffocation. Do you know any case in which the symptoms of poisoning by strychnia commenced with this beating of the bedclothes? There have been only about fifteen cases, and in none of those was the patient seized in bed. Beating of the bedclothes is a symptom which may be exhibited by a person suffering from a sense of suffocation, whether caused by strychnia or other causes. A case has been communicated to me by a friend, in which the patient shook as though he had the ague. Mr. Sergeant Shee objected to the last answer, but as the learned sergeant had been questioning the witness as to the results of his reading, the court ruled that the evidence was admissible. Cross-examination continued. I have known of no case of poisoning by strychnia, in which the patient screamed before he was seized. That is common in ordinary convulsions. In cases of poisoning by strychnia, the patient screams when the spasm set in. The pain is very severe. I cannot refer to a case in which the patient has spoken freely after the paroxysms had commenced. Can you refer me to any case in an authentic publication in which the access of the strychnia paroxysm has been delayed so long after the ingestion of the poison, as in the case of Cook on the Tuesday night? Yes, longer. In my book on medical jurisprudence, page 185 of the 5th edition, it is stated that in a case communicated to the Lancet, August 31st, 1850, by Mr. Bennett, a grain and a half of strychnia, taken by mistake, destroyed the life of a healthy young female in an hour and a half. None of the symptoms appeared for an hour. 
There is a case in which the period which elapsed was two hours and a half. It was not a fatal case, but that does not affect the question. A grain and a half is a full, but not a very considerable dose. In my book on poisons there is no case in which the paroxysms commenced more than half an hour after the ingestion of the poison. That book is eight years old, and since 1848 cases have occurred. There is a mention of one in which three hours elapsed before the paroxysms occurred. Mr. Sergeant Shee then referred to this case, and called attention to the fact that the only statement as to time was that in three hours the patient lost his speech, and at length was seized with violent tetanic convulsions. Cross-examination continued. I know of no other fatal case in which the interval was so long. In that case there was disease of the brain. Referring to the Lancet, I find that in the case to which I referred, as communicated by Dr. Bennett, the strychnia was dissolved in cinnamon water. Being dissolved, one would have expected it to have a more speedy action. The time in which a patient would recover would depend entirely upon the dose of strychnia which had been taken. I do not remember any case in which a patient recovered in three or four hours, but such cases must have occurred. There is one mentioned in my book on medical jurisprudence. The patient had taken nux vomica, but its powers depend upon strychnia. In that case, the violence of the paroxysms gradually subsided, and the next day, although feeble and exhausted, the patient was able to walk home. The time of the recovery is a point which is not usually stated by medical men. I cannot mention any case in which there was a repetition of the paroxysms after so long an interval as that from Monday to Tuesday night, which occurred in Cook's case. I do not think that the attack on Tuesday night was the result of anything which had been administered to him on the Monday night. In the cases of four out of five rabbits, the spasms were continued at the time of death and after death. In the other, the animal was flaccid at the time of death. Are you acquainted with this opinion of Dr. Christison that in these cases rigidity does not come on at the time of death but comes on shortly afterwards? Dr. Christensen speaks from his experience, and I from mine. Did you hear that Dr. Bamford said that when he arrived he found the body of Cook quite straight in bed? Yes. Can that have been a case of ophistotinus? It may have been. Are not the colour tests of strychnia so uncertain and fallacious that they cannot be depended upon? Yes, unless you first get the strychnia in a visible and tangible form. Is it not impossible to get it so from the stomach? It is not impossible. It depends upon the quantity which remains there. You do not agree that the fiftieth part of a grain might be discovered? I think not. Nor even half a grain? That might be. It would depend upon the quantity of food in the stomach with which it was mixed. Re-examined by the Attorney-General. In case of death from strychnia, the heart is sometimes found empty after death. That is the case of human subjects. There are three such cases on record. I think that emptiness results from spasmodic affection of the heart. I know of no reason why that should rather occur in the case of man than in that of a small animal like a rabbit. The heart is generally more filled when the paroxysms are more frequent. When the paroxysm is short and violent, and causes death in a few moments, I should expect to find the heart empty. The rigidity after death always affects the same muscles, those of the limbs and back. In the case of the rabbit, in which the rigidity was relaxed at the time of death, it returned while the body was warm. In ordinary death, it only appears when the body is cold, or nearly so. I never knew a case of tetanus, in which the rigidity lasted two months after death, but such a fact would give me the impression that there were very violent spasms. It would indicate great violence of the spasms from which the person died. The time which elapses between the taking of strychnia and the commencement of the paroxysms depends on the constitution and strength of the individual. 
A feeling of suffocation is one of the earliest symptoms of poisoning by strychnia, and that would lead the patient to beat the bedclothes. I have no doubt that the substances I used for the analysis were pure. I had tested them. The fact that in three distinct processes each gave the same result was strong confirmation of each. I have no doubt that what we found was antimony. The quantity found does not enable me to say how much was taken. It might be the residue of either large or small doses. Sickness would throw off some portion of the antimony which had been administered. We did not analyse the bones and tissues. Why did you suggest questions to the coroner? He did not put questions which enabled me to form an opinion. I think that arose rather from want of knowledge than from intention. There was an omission to take down the answers. I made no observation upon that subject. At the time I wrote to Mr. Gardner, I had not learnt the symptoms which attended the attack and death of Cook. I had only the information that he was well seven days before he died, and had died in convulsions. I had no information which could lead me to suppose that strychnia had been the cause of death, except that Palmer had purchased strychnia. Failing to find opium, prussic acid, or strychnia, I referred to antimony as the only substance found in the body. Before writing to the Lancet, I had been made the subject of a great many attacks. What I said as to the possibility or impossibility of discovering strychnia after death had been misrepresented. In various newspapers it had been represented that I had said that strychnia could never be detected, that it was destroyed by putrefaction. What I said was that when absorbed into the blood it could not be separated as strychnia. I wrote the letter for my own vindication. End of section 9